Let's pray. Father, indeed how great you are. You are the one who placed the stars, who formed the mountains and the oceans and all that is in them. And while many in the world may want to deny that you are the creator of this universe and attribute it to some big bang, (laughs) want to minimize your role on this universe, you stand above all. You reign supreme. And you allow us to call you Father. Lord, we marvel at your grace. Lord, we sing this song and I'm sitting here in a public school and it's just a a testimony of your goodness. We pray for the young people, for the college students. Many are going back, others it's the first time. For mom and dads that, uh, and guardians who are gonna shed a lot of tears in the next few days and weeks, comfort them as well. Lord, we're excited about the opportunities that lay ahead of these young people, but to Lord, we do pray a huge hedge of protection. Whether it's a Christian school, private school, or a state school, Lord, there are many things that Satan will love to place before them. Guard their hearts, their minds. For our young people going to the high schools and middle schools and elementaries, Perhaps it's the first time in kindergarten or preschool. Lord, we, we pray ahead to protection around these children as well. And for those involved in education, whether it's homeschooling, private, public, Lord, just be with our educators. Father, guide us as we go to the text today. It's just a reminder of what a great God you are. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One shouldn't sing How Great Thou Art before his sermon. I'm all choked up. I don't know about you, right? Turn to Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah 12. And as you do, just a reminder that next week is our second anniversary luncheon. We'd love to have you join us. I will say this. They would like you to register, please. It's just a head count so we know how much food to have and places to set. So make sure you register if you haven't done that today. Visitors are most welcome. And if this is your first time, love to have you. It's a great way to get to know some folks from CBF. So sign up for that. Also, August the 28th is our business meeting. It's at the end of the month. It's at 1130. And normally that's designed for members. But non-members, please come as well. Because it's an update on what God is doing through our Growing by Faith capital campaign. It is exciting. You don't want to miss it. And we've got almost, I think, almost 30 candidates for membership. So it is just exciting to see what God is doing. If you're interested in membership, see me, uh, see one of the staff. Uh, Also with baptisms, we've got four who are looking to be baptized this Saturday, the 27th. And then we'll videotape those and show them in the service, which is exciting. So again, We're in Nehemiah, if you've just joined, we're in chapter 12, starting at verse 27. As you turn there, last week marked the day that the Statue of Liberty was opened to the public after 9-11. This iconic symbol of freedom, Lady Liberty stands stoic as she overlooks the New York Harbor. 
The day that she was dedicated back in October 1886, some of you may remember, the 151 statue was quite, it was quite a deal. The governor, the president was there, the governor, Grover Cleveland, the president was there. New York Times reported that it was, there were so many people that came that every hotel was crowded to its utmost capacity. The newspaper went on to state and there was hardly one of the better known hotels which did not have to turn away hundreds of people. Cannons thundered, fireworks went off, shots were delivered from the hundreds of ships that were in the harbor. It was a glorious day as they dedicated the Statue of Liberty. Well, we have another point in history here in Nehemiah 12, and it's a dedication of the, the city walls. After 52 days of hard labor, those walls had been completed. And now, after a revival had broken out and a dedication of obedience on the part of the people to the Lord, it's time to dedicate the walls to the Lord. And that's where we, leave, or where we are in the text, starting in verse 27. As the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought from all the places they lived. Now remember, the Levites are where we get, that tribe is where the priests originate to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication joyfully with songs of thanksgiving and songs accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers were also assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the settlements. And then you have a various cities that are listed here, the Netophethites, excuse me, and from Beth Gilgal, from the fields of Geba and Asmatheth. For the singers had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. This is big stuff. It's the dedication. It's what we've been waiting for. If you remember the timeline that we've looked at before, we saw the exiles that happened starting in, well, ending in 586 was the last of the exiles. And as you can see, it's not until 445 that Nehemiah returns and the walls are rebuilt. And here we are after a long, it didn't just take the 52 days. Remember that Nehemiah was serving as a cupbearer in the Assyrian capital, Susa. And it is there that he asked to go back and to rebuild this wall. And notice that the text, as it starts here in verse 27 of chapter 12, we see an emphasis on joy. You won't want to miss that. We're going to see that several times in, the, in this passage. In fact, it bookends this first section here in the latter part of 27. We're going to see the manner in which the joy has been given, the who, which is the Levites, the priest, and the means, which is primarily through singing, which is interesting. Singing is seen throughout uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew scriptures were seen as one book. In our canon, they were separated. But joy is seen, praising. In fact, it was seen at the construction of the altar back in Ezra 3. It was seen at the foundation of the temple in Ezra later part of 3. The completion of the temple, Ezra 6. The restoration of the wall, as seen here in 12, and we'll see it in the dedication of the storerooms later in chapter 12. Well, notice what instruments are being used to celebrate. It's the, 
the ancient guitars of the day, right? You got harps and lyres, which are plucked instruments, stringed instruments. I know when you think of a harp, you think of this gigantic instrument, you know, that uh, someone sits and plays. No, 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 no. Harps were handheld. You could carry them as they moved along. The difference between a harp and a lyre, not that you were wondering, but a harp has a straight neck. A lyre has a curved one. One has a lower pitch than the other. So they complement one another along with the cymbals. Why is this all being highlighted here? Well, we're going to see that in a minute, but it should draw the reader back to when the temple was dedicated under Solomon in 2 Chronicles. If you remember 2 Chronicles 5, it said, all the Levites who were musicians, including Asaph, remember, we're going to come back to him. Remember that name. They played cymbals and stringed instruments as they stood near the east of the altar. They were accompanied by 120 priests who blew trumpets. Can you imagine? What, an, uh, what a fanfare, right? The trumpeters, musicians played together, Second Chronicles states, and they were giving thanks to the Lord. And they declared, singing, certainly he is good. Certainly his loyal love endures. And then it says a cloud filled the Lord's temple. So seeing this in Nehemiah should draw us back to the time when the temple was dedicated, showing this continuity and an understanding that God's people are to be appreciative, and it's the priest who will lead the charge. Not all Levites were musicians, but it does appear that all musicians serving in a formal capacity in the temple were Levites. And so here we are. Aren't we thankful for our, the musicians in our midst? So thankful for Ben, director of our worship, for our musicians who serve on the praise team, praise band, and our choir, which is resuming next month, which is exciting. 40, I think almost 30, 35 to 40 voices. Looking forward to having them praising and leading us in worship. And that's what we see here. Well, we're told, as you look at the text, looking at verse 28 and 29, that the, uh, uh, an issue is made, hey, we're going to need help with this celebration. And so they've called for volunteers among the Levites from various, various regions. And these are the names of the towns that are given. The reason I show you that map is you'll notice none of them are far from Jerusalem. Why? They settled so they could be close to the city when they can help with the, the, the ceremonies, with the festivals, etc. And that allows them to be in, it come to these events very close. Again, about three and a half miles is the farthest distance, I think, from, of the sites that are given. This is important. They're to come and to assist. One of the reasons we're told in the text is we see in verse 30 is that the need for purification this is how it was to begin. Now, we know how they purified themselves through ritual baths, etc. How they purified the walls and the gates is debated among scholars. There was no power washer at the time or Mike's car wash. So we're a little uncertain how they did it. But most likely, it involves some type of ceremony of sprinkling similar to the cleansing of houses seen back in Leviticus 14. Well, let's look what happens. We've got the stage set, verse 30. One And I brought, this is Nehemiah, he says, I brought the leaders of Judah up to the wall. And he says, I appoint, appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. Don't you love it? Here we go. And I appointed these choirs. One was to proceed to the top of the wall southward towards the dung gate. 
Going after them was Hoshaiah, half the leaders of Judah. And there are listed some of the priests, verse 35, there are listed. And it's interesting in verse 35, it says some of the priests with trumpets, Zechariah. And then you have this long list of, he's the son of, the son of, the son of, and you get to Asaph. We'll get to him in a minute. Very significant. And his colleagues there are listed with musical instruments of David, the man of God. Now Ezra, the scribe, led them. They went over the fountain gate and continued directly up to the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall. They passed the house of David and continued on to the water gate that has nothing to do with Nixon towards the east, right? So it gives you an idea of the path and we'll talk about that in a minute. The second choir was proceeding in the opposite direction. So you got this antiphonal going on, right? One choir is singing this way, another choir is going that way and singing. And we're, we're told, and, and I, that's Nehemiah, followed them along with half the people on top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over to the Ephraim gate, the Jesahana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. They stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs that gave thanks took their stations in the temple of God. I did also, along with half the officials with me, and says in verse 42, the choirs sang loudly under the direction. And here we have the choral director, right? Jezreiah, who leads the choirs in a unison in song as they are at the temple. Well, let's unpack this. There's a lot of names. And we're going, okay, it kind of lost me there, Hoffman. Why is it significant? What's happening? So let's look at this. And if you're following along in your notes, this is letter B. But Nehemiah leads the group. Did you catch that? And where do they go? Along the bottom of the walls? The text says where? On the top. Now, do you remember? Turn back to Nehemiah 4. This is so significant. Do you remember Tobiah the Ammonite? If you hear his name, you should go boo hiss. Right? He was an enemy of the, of the people, of the Israelites. It said in 4.3, then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was close by, said, even if a fox, 3.7 pounds on the average, were to climb up on what they're building, it would break down. <laughs> oh, really? Let's try a bunch of musicians, right? They got the opera singer, so she's really heavy, right? They got them all. Here they go. They're going up one side, going to the next. They got the instruments. And what, is it, what happens to the walls? It's secure. <laughs> God's sense of humor, I think. These two groups are identified. Notice what they're identified as, the Thanksgiving choirs. That's because turkey will be served later. No. If they embody what they are singing, that is they are giving thanks to God. Choir one is led, we see Ezra is in that group. Choir two, it's Nehemiah. And he has the choir director with him. All right, so let's go. Let's look at this. So here we have the walls that have been rebuilt at the time of Nehemiah. This is Jerusalem. The large building you see at the top of the screen is the temple, right? The spine that you see uh, goes down. That's this, the old city of David. David's palace would have been in that region. It's torn down. The red circle that you, you see on the screen is most likely the origin of this parade that takes place. It's the valley gate. 
It's the exact location where Nehemiah started. When he arrived into Jerusalem, remember he spent the night and inspecting the walls? That's the place he started. The choir starts, these two choirs start at this area where the inspection occurs. Now, forgive my graphics, but you get the idea. Choir number one goes along the south side. They go counterclockwise. The second choir goes along the wall, going clockwise around the temple. Now, we're going to envision that this room, sorry if you're online, you can do that in your family room. But for those of us who are in this room, we're going to envision this is the temple complex, the walls of the, the whole city of David. We're going to make that the valley gate, that camera, right? Choir one is going to come this way. They're going to go around. They're going to go about to where that door is right over there. They don't go all the way around, obviously, and they'll then go up into the temple area from the water gate. The second choir is going to go to the north. They don't come all the way around. They'll enter about the northeast quadrant of the temple complex. And the groups, so we don't go all the way around the walls, but for the most part, we're doing this. It's symbolic. And then they're going to come together and they're going to meet in the temple, which is so vital to what's happening here. You say, oh, okay. Thank you, Hafeditz. That's lovely. Uh, You know, wish I could have been there, but you know, okay. Well, there are a lot of names that are thrown out. In fact, I didn't read them all. I'd slaughter them. But if you did a little bit of research, in fact, you could do this this afternoon, pull out Nehemiah 3 and compare, you're going to find a lot of names that are very similar. Why? These are the very people who worked on the wall. (laughs) The ones that are walking it are the ones who helped build it. Yes, the Levites were involved. The walls were a tangible testimony to God's amazing provision. And each stone underfoot served as a testimony of the investment they had made. Several years ago, my dad and I finished the basement. I should say more my dad than I, but uh, he's the guru. But we, we finished the basement. And I can tell you, oh yes, that section over there, we had a horrible time with the drywall. Uh, that area there, I didn't think I'd ever get that insulation stuffed in. And yes, that's where we cut a wrong hole for the pendant light. You know, So you, you know all those areas. You, you can walk through it. And you can imagine as they knew these stones. They remembered the nights they worked well into the evening hours when they smashed the hammer on their finger or smashed the finger with the hammer and where friends helped them lift a particularly heavy stone. One commentator writes, every inch of these ramparts had its special memory for one group or another. Hmm. I don't know what they were singing. I wonder if it might not be something like Psalm 48, where it reads, walk about Zion, Jerusalem. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Why? So you can have a historical architectural tour? No. It's so that, the text says, you may tell the next generation, this is our God. (laughs) Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forevermore. While we may not be able to walk the wall in our lives, we need to reflect on what God has done. Spend some time walking over the walls of your salvation, the relationships he's restored, the health that he's given, his gracious hand of mercy and peace. Psalm 77, I will remember the works of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the things that he has done. 
long ago. Recently, I was talking to a gentleman who said, I, I just, I don't, I'm not excited about the things of the Lord like I used to. I, I don't sense this burning relationship I had with the Lord when I first got saved. Huh. Well, there's a solution to it. It's found in Revelation 2. It's in red letters. It's what Jesus told the church when he said, therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent, do the deeds you did first. There it is. It's based on remembrance what God has done and get back to getting your hands dirty. Start serving the Lord. There's your solution. There's no magical 12 steps. You don't need to read another book. You want to get on fire for God? Reflect on what he's done. Walk the walls. This is what God has done for us. This is what he's done for me. And also, in the process, get busy. Don't sit on the laurels. Don't wait for people to come to you. Oh, I just, I don't feel like people are engaging me. I just don't. Get out there. Serve. There's your solution. Revelation 2, 5. Well, they walk these walls, and there's a name that occurs five times in the text. Don't miss it. It's David. Five times he's included in all the way up through verse uh, 50, 46, which we'll look at in a minute. It reminds us of the promises to David. Oh yeah, the palace may no longer exist, but God made a promise to David. This land belongs to the Israelites. The promise he gave to Abraham, he reiterates in many ways with the Davidic covenant that he's made, God makes in 2 Samuel 7. There's another name that I highlighted to you that occurs twice in this section, and that's Asaph. I mentioned him before. He's referred to nearly 40 times in Scripture. 12 of the hymns he wrote. And you say, well, who is he? He was the leading worship guy for David. He was the George Beverly Shea of Billy Graham, right? The Iris Sankey of D.L. Moody. He, he was the music guy. And, and he's the one who served as a guide. In fact, his descendants formed a guild of musicians, and that's what's being highlighted here in the text. What you see is God's, the promises he's made, there, there's continuity. As they walk these walls and you read these names, they're not just here for posterity's sake. It's like, oh, look at this. It makes the genealogist excited. No, 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 no. There's, there's more to this. It, it's God is keeping his promises. God is making his provisions. And he is sustaining them. And so in verse 43, as you see, and on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Watch this next line. For God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. Wow. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, said that when you close the doors of Herod's temple... Jerusalem temple that Herod built, revised, the doors, you could hear them 13 miles away in Jericho. I suspect you could hear the singing going on 13 miles away in Jericho. The trumpets were playing, the cymbals were crashing. This is an exciting day because they're celebrating their God. Five times the word joy is mentioned in verse 43 alone. Joy, joy, joy. It, it's similar again to the dedication of the temple in Ezra 6. Nehemiah highlights that everyone, no one was exempt in celebrating this joy. In fact, he says it's great joy along with great sacrifice. But the phrase that I want you to see is that for God had given them great joy. 
There are some scholars who want to translate the Lord as an objective genitive rather than subjective. Say, what, what do you mean? Well, if I translate it as an objective genitive, the joy of the people is in the Lord. Hear the difference? Is it the people's joy or is it the joy of seeing it as subjective and that is that the joy is given to them from the Lord? There's a huge difference. And subjective is that which is to be rendered here, I would argue. I base that on also Nehemiah 8.10, which also seems to indicate that it is the joy that God gives them. Listen to what one writer states. Because of God's joy over them, they can rejoice. This is why they were weeping. Remember that day? And Nehemiah said, stop weeping. Because they were to celebrate God's favor to them. Yahweh's joy is the basis of the protection from the consequences of their neglect of the law. Yahweh's joy is found in Israel. That's significant. And we're going to see that later. And as we come even to the New Testament, where do we find joy? It's because what's been given to us through the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, right, is joy. Well, let's look then at verses 44 through 47, because we're not done with this great festivity. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions. And you can just see this. People are pouring in. The choirs are singing. There's celebration in the temple. And now you have many, many of the local yokels, the Jews, coming from not only Jerusalem, but from all over, bringing their offerings to the Lord. The priests and the Levites, verse 45, they perform the service of their God, the service of purification, along with the singers, gatekeepers, according to the commandment of David and his son Solomon. There it is again. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there it is again, there has been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanks to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel, that's the first round who came and built the temple, if you recall, uh, and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel were contributing the proportions for the singers, the gatekeepers, according to the daily need. They also set a portion of the Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. These contributions that are being brought in is a fulfillment of the promise they made back in chapter 10. Remember this? When the revival broke out, one of the things that they swore they would do is reinstate their contributions to the temple. And here they are doing it. The rebuilt wall removed the reproach of the name of God. And when the storerooms were full for the Levites, these priests who couldn't tend their own fields because they're spending their days serving in the temple, it declared to everyone that God was able to provide for his faithful servants who facilitated worship in the temple. <laughs> this is what we see happening. And you say, okay, Hophanitz, what do we do with this? So let me give you a few principles there in your notes as, you're, as we look at this text. I centered it on joy because that's what permeates this great dedication of the wall. First, joy is God-centered. The word joy is so rich in the Hebrew that there's a variety of words that are used for that very term. In fact, in Zephaniah 3, there are eight different words used for joy in two verses. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 17, it says, shout for joy... 
daughter Zion. Shout out Israel, be happy and boast with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He makes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. Isn't that beautiful? That's our God. The richness of joy stem from God himself. Think about it. It stems from the Father. Romans 15, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. The Spirit's role is played because the gift of joy is one of the gifts the Spirit gives, Galatians 5, and the Son comes into play, that is Christ. He serves as a source of spiritual joy, which is personal, attained through suffering and not from this world. Hebrews 12, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set out for him, he endured the cross. Joy is God-centered. It, it, it exudes from him. That's where we obtain joy. Psalm 16, in your presence, that is the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, the Trinity. There is fullness of joy, the psalmist declares. Joy is not isolated, one scholar writes, or occasional consequence of faith. It's rather a part of one's relationship to God. Because as a child of God, it comes from our source, our Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If you have a relationship with Christ, how are you living your life? Do you appear like you're sucking on prune juice everywhere you go? Right? You're the sorriest person to be around. Oh, right here comes Igor. Right? Your relationship with Christ, I mean, is it showing this? Is it reflecting it? You know, there's nothing quicker to rob joy in the life of the believer than what? Disobedience, living in sin. In fact, I would argue that if you're truly a child of his, you are going to be miserable if you're living in sin because it's the conviction of the Spirit. And joy, if you're quenching the Spirit, grieving Him, then it's gonna conflict with what the Spirit can give, and that, that's, that's joy. Remember the old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy or joyful in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's clear. Perhaps you don't have a relationship with Christ, and you've been looking for happiness, joy, and security, outlook, being independent, perhaps it's with relationships, meaningful activity, a bowl of ice cream, I don't know, you fill in the blank. Those are all fleeting. Where is true joy found? It's what the Israelites were displaying in Nehemiah 12. Our joy is found in the one who gives it to us, that is God. It's God-centered. Secondly, joy accompanies gratitude. Did you notice the text? Here in Nehemiah, verse 27, they joyfully sing with songs of what? Thanksgiving. What's the choirs called? The Thanksgiving choirs. I love it. Verse 46, the songs of praise and thanks to God. They go hand in hand. One theologian said, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. For the believer, joy should just ooze from our pores. It should be natural in the light of what we know. Remember the last time you gave someone a gift and they open it and they just kind of, huh. you know, they just kind of shrugged. 
I mean, you spent a lot of time picking that out. It wasn't just a, another lotion from Bath and Body. I mean, you, you really worked and found this gift and you slaved over it and you wrapped it up and they just mumble a little thank you under their breath. I mean, it's like, what? what is that? You know, I don't mean, you don't have to have a break out in some song opening my gift, but you'll just be happy I gave it to you, right? What do you think the Lord is saying, right? <laughs> I mean, you think about this, our joy bask in God's forgiveness. Psalm 51, David said, let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Why? Because he's in sin, he, he sinned with Bathsheba, and he's, the weight of the world is on him. He said, let me experience the joy that I once had in, in being in a relationship with you. Our joy recognizes God's favor. Psalm 4, you make me happier than those who have abundant grain and wine. I don't need everything, Lord, because I have you and I rest in you. Our joy delights in fellowship with God. Psalm 63, for this reason, I will praise you while I live. In your name, I will lift up your hands. You satisfy my soul. My mouth joyfully praises you. Our joy is found in the Lord. Our joy stems from gratitude. And finally, because of those two, our joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but upon an inward focus. That is, it's with our relationship with the Lord. I mean, think about the Israelites. Are they still accountable to Persia? Yep. Are things still in shambles, the way the homes and so forth in the city? Yep. Is the temple like it used to be? Nope. Yet they're joyful. They're praising the Lord. Our joy is rooted in what the Lord has accomplished. Joy is not so much a feeling as it is a settled state of mind characterized by peace and an attitude that views life, including all of its up and downs. Why? Because we confidently are rooted in the living Lord. That's what Philippians is all about, the book of joy. It, because it, it recognizes what the Lord has accomplished, but our joy is also bolstered by what the Lord is currently doing. Paul can say, while in prison in Rome, and he's not there having a spa day, right? <laughs> he could face death. And what does he tell the church at Philippi? Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Wow. Because it's not based upon circumstances, based on what the Lord has accomplished. It's based upon what the Lord is doing. Jerry Bridges writes, the purpose of rejoicing is not so much so we can feel better emotionally, but the purpose of joy is to glorify God by demonstrating to an unbelieving world that our loving and faithful Heavenly Father cares for us and provides for us. As those two choirs went, joy, 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 as they're going around singing, right? Uh, around the city walls. <clears throat> Don't forget, Sambalat, the, uh, the Samaritan, Tobiah the Ammonite. All these enemies of Israel are also hearing them sing. <laughs> they have to recognize, no, this, this is the Lord. The testimony is clear. And for those who haven't embraced the Ammonites and really haven't embraced the Israelites and the riding the fence, they see this. There's a difference here. I have an, when I took tours to Israel, I had an Israeli guide who asked, how did you come to know Jesus as your savior, your Meshua? He said, oh, it was easy. He said, there was a group of American tourists, and he said, they were so joyful. He said, I wanted that. He goes, I don't have that, and I wanted it, and that's how I came to know the Lord. 
It, our, our joy is rooted in what the Lord has accomplished, what he's currently doing, and it strengthened our joys by what the Lord will do. 1 Peter 1, you have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him, and so you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you are obtaining this goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And let's not forget the marriage feast of the Lamb, right? For the church with their bride, or the, their groom, the Savior, in Revelation 19, there is a call given out, rejoice, here it is. And so these Israelites are celebrating. God has been faithful they have much to express gratitude. As we come to communion today, it seems rather odd, you know, communion is such a somber moment, and it is, I'm not downplaying that. But do you realize that when communion was given in Acts 2 in the early church, it says, every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread, there it is, sharing their food, praising God. Joy accompanied communion in the first century. Octavius Winslow, a Puritan, writes this, and forgive me for reading this rather lengthy quote, but it's so good. The religion of Christ is a religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open our prison house, to cancel our debt in a world, to give us the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Is this not joy? Where can we find joy so real, so deep, so pure, so lasting? There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying in the gospel of Christ. He said, it's where, it, it's, it, you think about it, this is where in our joy in Christ we find our sins forgiven, our soul is justified, our person is adopted, our trials are turned to blessings, conflicts are victories, death, <laughs> it's immortality, and our future in heaven is inconceivable. When we recognize all that God has done, it should bring us great joy. And so, let's take a few minutes, let's walk the walls. Perhaps this week, or more recently, yeah, you've made a profession in Christ, but you've not lived a life of gratitude and joy these last few weeks. You've struggled, and there's some time that you need to spend with the Lord. Perhaps you don't have a relationship with the Lord this joy thing, it sounds so foreign to you. Ah, come bask at the Lord's presence. This communion table is for those who know Jesus as their Savior. So let's spend some time. You realize the Lord's Supper is sometimes called the Eucharist, which in the Greek means thanksgiving. And so let's thank the Lord and joy before taking of the bread and the wine.
Lord, we come to you and life's just busy and it's hard. And for some this morning, oh, they've made that profession, but the walk with you has been difficult. Perhaps from wrong choices they've made or wrong choices others have made that affected them. Father, may we be known as people of gratitude, people of joy because of what you've accomplished. For those who don't know you this morning, this communion is meaningless because this is a a remembrance of what you have done. And so, Father, I pray that they would bend their knee to partake of you because it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we find forgiveness of sin because of the price that he paid on the cross for us. As Hebrews stated, he did that with joy, and we thank you. So, Father, bless the bread and the cup, Lord, as we remember once again the great sacrifice that's been made. Lord, may we be men and women, children who reflect that in our lives, a life of gratitude and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul understood the importance of communion. He reiterates it to the church at Corinth. I find it interesting that it's in Corinthians and it's not found in uh, other books because the church at Corinth had a lot of problems. And I think he knew he needed to, to rally the troops and bring them together and help them in their spiritual walk. And the communion is a great time just to spend in a period of reflection, recognizing who our God is and who we really are. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that the, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he, he took the bread, and after he gave thanks, <laughs> thanks, knowing full well what lied before him, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is my new covenant, my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for our salvation that's found in your blessed son Jesus